Hello and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and our guest tonight is writer Melanie Conroy Goldman. Before I introduce Melanie, I want to thank you all for tuning in and let you know that you can now listen to Writer Mother Monster as a podcast on all major audio platforms or read the interview transcripts at your leisure all on writermothermonster.com. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider becoming a Writer Mother Monster patron or patroness on Patreon. Your support helps make this series possible. Please also chat with us during the live interview. Your comments and questions will appear in our broadcast studio and we'll weave them into our conversation. Now I'm excited to introduce Melanie. Melanie Conroy Goldman is the author of the novel The Likely World from Red Hen Press. A professor of creative writing at Hobart and Willis William Smith Colleges, she was a founding director of the Trias Residency for Writers. Her fiction has been published in Southern Review, Story Quarterly, in anthologies from Morrow and St. Martin's, and online at venues like McSweeney's.net. She also volunteers at a maximum security men's prison with the Cornell Prison Education Program. She lives in Ithaca, New York, with her husband, daughter, and stepdaughters. Welcome, Melanie. Ah, here I am. Hi. Hello, here you are. So Thank great you so much you. for having me on. Absolutely. Um, now, first of all, I apologize if I mispronounced the name of the residency for writers that you founded. Could you tell us if I pronounced it correctly and just tell us a little bit about what it is? Um, yeah, you were in the ballpark. It's okay. the Trius Residency for Writers, and it's at the colleges where I teach, Hobart and William Smith College. And um, the it's a year-long residency for a later career writer, um, and it provides housing and generous benefits and a generous salary. And the writer comes to campus, teaches one class in the first semester, and then um, is in low residency in the second semester. So they work with a small group of students in a tutorial. Um, but it's designed um, by writers to give time to a writer, um, and the and the residence itself is really lovely. And we've had um, Mary Gateskill, Jeff Vandermeer, Lydia Yuknovich, Tom Piazza, um, and poets come too. But I'm I manage the fiction writing house, so that's who that's who pops to mind. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. And so you you mentioned making time that the residency helps writers um, have the time and space to work on their craft. So we'll get to that um, and talk about how you make time and space for your writing. But first, tell us a little bit about your family. Um, who lives in your house? Tell us about your children. Well, I live with my husband and um, my biological daughter, whose name is Coco. And then I have two stepdaughters, um, and they are 17 and about to launch, applying for college right now. Um, and that's Dot. And then I have an older stepdaughter who is at college right now, and she's 20. Wow. So you have a full range of, of daughters there. I do. I do. I have all the daughters. All the daughters. Yep. Um, and then tell us just a little bit, a brief summary of your writing life and career. I'm going to hold up the likely world 
There we go. And you have yours. Crazy coincidence. Yeah. And we're both Red Hen authors, so um, Red Hen Press. And tell us just a little bit about this book and then about um, where you came in with writing and um, how you made it to um, to the schools where you teach. Um, so this book started in the car. Um, I was driving. I commute an hour to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first couple of lines, in fact, most of the first chapter just started playing in my head. And I know when that happens, it nothing else matters. The other drivers on the road, the fact that you're on a slick uh, two-lane highway um, through the woods where deer leap out, none of that matters. So um, I pulled out, uh, I rooted around on the floor for a piece of paper, turned out to be one of my daughter's drawings, and um, sacrilegiously, I uh, wrote, a couple of words while I was driving. So I was late for work, couldn't pull over. Um, and, um, and that's where the novel began. Um, my daughter was five at the time. Um, I had just met my husband. Um, uh, and, um, and I'd been a single mom up until that point. Um, so that kind of sense of the, the pressure and difficulty of, um, parenting solo, was something that very much um, is present in the likely world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where the book started. I had a draft of it probably a year and a half later. It's a long book. Um, it's like uh, three, 350 pages. Um, and then I spent, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a serious reviser, and I probably did 12, I would say roughly 12 full revisions of the book. Um and um landed my agent bill clegg which felt like a miracle um and um he brought it to redham i think he'd met kate gale um on a plane or something by coincidence and they started talking about the book and um she wanted it and that's where i ended up um and that's how i know you (laughs) so that's the that's the story of of how this book was made, roughly, overview. Um, and um, I entered academia through luck. Um, and it was never never my plan. I mean, and I know it's so hard right now um, to, to get in. I, I always say when I'm reading stacks of applications that um, where the people are so talented and there's so many wonderful candidates, um, that I don't know how I could compete with um, the people coming up now. But um, my mentor in graduate school, Peter Ho Davis, um, uh, pointed me towards an emerging writer fellowship at Gettysburg College. And it was in its very first year. Um, and I applied and, um, and got that fellowship. And then from there, um, I continue to just be lucky. I got a visiting gig um, at Rhodes College, which converted to a tenure line. And then um, I applied to Hobart and William Smith and ended up there where I've been for, I think, 19 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. For a long time. Let's go back for a second to the beginning of The Likely World, and then we can make our way back to William and Hobart, Hobart and William. Um, so 
funny. I actually wrote the the novel that I'm working on right now. It came to me in the car with a couple sentences. Yeah, and I have an hour commute as well, and um, use that time to to think and to generate ideas. Um, do you remember, or would you consider sharing those first few words that generated your novel? Should I read them? Sure, that'd be great. Okay. Um, the black SUV pulls into my driveway on the evening of my 29th day sober. Junie is downstairs, bouncing in the safari seat in front of her cartoons. Twilight has fallen, but I've been trying and failing to work all day, and I have yet to pause to turn on the lamp. I mean, I think, as you can hear, the pressure of parenting and working is right there at the center of the novel. Um, and, um, and, and it plays itself out throughout the, um, the main character is a recovering addict and newly recovered and she's trying to work, but she's also trying to stay sober. And one of the things that I write about is that sobriety is, um, an incredibly demanding, um, uh, life phase, right? Entering sobriety and trying to parent while trying to also do the work of staying sober is an extra barrier that I think hasn't often been written about, although, um, some people have written about it incredibly beautifully. Um, and, um, you know, and, and that's, I mean, that act of balancing is both present in work for working mothers and for mothers who are struggling with various kinds of mental health issues, um, including addiction. Yeah, and we'll get to working motherhood in a second, but let's talk a bit more about the addiction side and what is particularly, um, um, I mean, maybe it's sort of a challenge, an obvious question, but what is particularly challenging about the addiction that then makes motherhood challenging and vice versa? How do they play off of each other? Do you think in real life, but then how did you translate that experience for the book? Well, you know, addiction is every addict's first love. Um, there's no way around it. The getting high, um, or staving off cravings is just so powerful within the brain chemistry that um, the thing that should come first, um, which is a child, um, can't. Right. So um, in terms of um, so so there's a, a sort of central betrayal um, at the heart of any addict parent. And if you ever hear mm-hmm. any any person who's recovered from addiction talk about parenting, um, that's something that they, that they'll always say, um, that, that they couldn't, they couldn't parent in the way that it has to be. It has to be primary. There was no other way to parent because the addiction is primary. And recovery, although it's necessary for any addict parent to be able to parent, is also in some ways has to come first to work. Um, so even though the, the move is good for the child, there's this, um, intermediary phase where recovery, recovery is going to take the front seat. Um, mm-hmm. um, in terms of translating it into, um, the novel, I mean, I think that, um, there's, uh, the, there's a kind of, there are passages where the child isn't present. Um, 
long sections where what I hope is that the reader will kind of have a um, be troubled. Where's the baby? Um, uh, why why aren't we seeing what's going on with the baby? And that although it seems that the character has forgotten, I haven't. Right. As the writer, I haven't forgotten. And that anxiety that the reader might feel for where the child is during this time um, is paid off when we return to the child and we find out where that child has been. The novel keeps track of the child, even if the character can't. And that's a way of kind of demonstrating that that tension. Yeah. And you write that so beautifully. I think it's incredibly challenging to write anxiety. Um, but not just to write about anxiety, but to infuse a book and, and the prose with a sense of anxiety to give the reader that sense of anxiety. So I think that was particularly <laughs> thrilling and, you know, heart wrenching in the likely world. Um, we have a question here from Amy Shern, another Red Hen Press author. Mm-hmm. Hi, Amy. She says she loves the likely world so much. She says, I wonder, is it the first novel you ever wrote or are there some other book drafts in drawers somewhere? Oh, there are book drafts in drawers. Um, I have two, I think. One that I finished writing um, uh, like a month before my daughter was born with the intention of picking it back up, but I could not. Um, I could not partly because I was the single mom of a baby who had some health trouble. Um, and I also could not because I was a new person afterwards. The things that, that, that concerned me were not the same as the things that concerned that person before. Um, but the, the, the narrative is also about a child in peril in peril, right? Uh, also about that tension between um, parents' lives and the needs of a child. Um, but it was set in the 1970s um, in, the, in, in a radicalized um, women's movement milieu. Um, and then while she was a baby, I wrote a second one that's about a pregnant woman um, on, on the run from an abusive spouse. Um, And, um, that was kind of the, that was kind of like the escapist book that I was trying to write. You could tell I'm not very good at escapism. Um, but, um, it was, um, it was, uh, set in a kind of post-apocalyptic world. Um, and, um, uh, the, yeah. And the, and the narrator is, is pregnant and leaving her spouse and moving into this unknown territory you know, doesn't take a deep psychologist to read that one. Um, and then I kind of, I got to the end of that one and, um, I felt like, okay, this was the, this was the book I wrote to keep writing, but this wasn't the book I wanted to bring out. So yeah, that's the answer. Yeah, no, I think we all have those drafts in our drawers. Yeah, probably. Uh, but let's go back to what you said. There is something really interesting that I've heard from some of the other mother writers on the show. Um, that after becoming a writer, your interests, your themes changed, your way of writing, your connection with characters, um, all of those things do change in, in sometimes shuttle, subtle and sometimes pretty extreme ways. So can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you? Um, what do you mean by that? Um, those books no longer interested you? You know, um, the, I think the, the clearest way I can say it is that 
um, before um, I I wrote The Likely World, I was writing about characters. And when I wrote The Likely World, I was writing as a character. Um, Mm -hmm. I found a way to inhabit um, the character that felt... um, that felt more authentic to me. Um, I didn't want to, I didn't want to talk about things anymore. I wanted to be vivid and live inside of an electric experience. Um, and that it just felt like a new way of writing. Um, and, um, it's, I think it's kind of going to be interesting to see what happens next. Um, cause I'm trying to write characters who are less like myself. Um, and trying to, trying to be, um, um, trying to embody that same kind of thing. Um, and, um, and it's, it's a cool process. What do you think it is about motherhood that made you inhabit characters rather than write about them? I mean, I think partly it's the intensity of the experience. Um, I think that, um, that, that, you know, you live so much in the moment as the parent of, uh, especially a young child, a baby, um, and, um, so you're kind of embedded in experience in a way. I mean, maybe other people live that way all the time. I don't know, but for me, I, you know, I was pretty intellectual person. Um, pretty, I, I'd say like on the spectrum, I was more kind of my brain was carried around inside of my body, but you know, motherhood turns you into like, you know, a milk cow. And, um, like, even if you're not breastfeeding, you're the provider of milk. And, um, and, you know, there's no, there's no two ways about it. Your, your body is first. Um, and so that kind of transforms experience. Um, and then I also think that there's like, there's a desperation to be yourself that emerges from that period of, of being melded with another, um, with another human, um, so that, that there's an intense connection to self that comes. I don't know if you're there yet, Lara. Um, (laughs) right. I mean, when I still had a three and a half year old, I still felt like, um, like the brain space, there was very little brain space. Um, and, um, but when that kind of, that thing that happened when she turned five um, and suddenly could entertain herself and there was space. I thought, Oh my God, I met this amazing person myself. Oh, I can't wait for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I'm still very much in the face of like, if you try to do something on your own or by yourself, the little person comes in and says, what are you doing? Will you play with me? I need a juice. I want a snack, you know, all those things. Yeah, so. I want to touch your body, right? Yeah. Oh, there's so much touching. <laughs> yeah, and tell you, there's there's not as much touching when you have teenagers. In fact, you have to chase after them and um to to grab a kind of a half hug. Um, That's what I keep reminding myself as she's sleeping in our bed now for the probably fifth or sixth week in a row. I'm just like, someday she won't want to snuggle with me, so I should you know, enjoy it. Enjoy the sleepless nights while I can. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, how did you actually manage to write a book while with an infant and whether or not you published that book, you still were writing, you were generating, you 
did you complete the book? What were your strategies for writing when she was that young? Okay. So first of all, I just want to say I am no role model. Like, I mean, I found it incredibly hard and I, I mean, I saw your guest last week and she just sounded like a genius um, who was breastfeeding and doing PR at the same time and writing books in a pandemic with a baby. I, and I was like, that's just not me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I did a lot of not writing, um, you know, and um, and I don't think I could have done it any other way. It wasn't like a lack of will or whatever. I just, you know, I was nursing a baby most of my waking hours for trying to get that baby to sleep or bouncing her because she was crying, you know, that I just, it, you know, as a single mom, especially, but I think dual parent um, families have the same thing. Just wasn't going to happen. Um, and then I got this magical thing called childcare. And that's how I did it. Um, she was, um, she, I was on leave from work. Um, uh, I had a maternity leave stacked on top of a tenure leave. I had childcare like 25 hours a week and that's how I did it. And, um, and I know I was so fortunate to have those things. And, um, and I think, um, you know, I think everyone should have those things, right? I mean, every parent should have adequate childcare and generous leave. And, um, you know, the fact that I had those things is how I, how I did it, you know? And I think there are probably lots of people who have kids under five who are barely writing and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's anything else is extraordinary and, and, um, superhuman. Um, and it's like, Anyone who's squeezing out a couple of words a week with a child under five is doing great. That's what I think. Yeah, here, here. I wish, like, in Zoom with StreamYard that there was a little heart emoji <laughs> or, like, the clapping hands or something. But I see people doing thumbs up and um, hearts here in the comments. So, yeah, very well said. Um, we do have a question here, but before I get to Alexis's great question, I want to go back to child care because I know, Melanie, it was something that you said you were particularly interested in talking about when we chatted before the interview. Um yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head. It's something that is so inadequate in our com- in our country and so beyond so many people's grasp. Um, it should not be a luxury to have childcare in any world, but it's particularly a well-developed world. So can we talk a little bit about that? What would your ideal childcare revolution look like? I mean, I think one of the things that has to happen is cultural, um, right? I mean, there's still shame around not having your, um, not taking care of your kids full time, not being a stay at home mom. Um, and, um, so that's bananas. Um, I think childcare providers need to be paid, um, well. I mean, you know, the, the money that childcare providers make is criminal. Um, uh, and, um, and it needs to be everywhere, a given, right? I was reading, um, so I've been thinking about childcare as a, as a lens for thinking critically about, um, about fiction. And I was rereading, um, my struggle, uh, today, um, the, uh, Carl Ove Nausgaard book, um, which, um, I had, I had 
like cast away from me because it enraged me in terms of how it, it deals with childcare. Um, he spent talk about what it, what he says. You're probably about to, but yeah, well. he's, he's so he's in Sweden in the first volume of my struggle. And, um, he has a partner and he has, uh, you know, free childcare <laughs> readily available and he's moaning about how hard it is to be a writer and a parent. And I think that's totally legit. It is hard to be a writer and a parent, even if you have free Swedish childcare. But it wouldn't be a novel if it were written by a woman, right? Like, the only reason why his struggle to be a writer while also having to sometimes occasionally provide childcare to his own children is why that's the topic of a novel is because he's a man. And if there were, um, you know, for a woman's novel, um, like a parent, and I know there are, I know there are many women who are novelists and many novels, which don't contend with children, but for a woman novelist, the, that's like the, that's the assumption. The assumption is that it's hard to do both. It's not the subject. It's not the plot, right? And the fact that it's somehow elevated to this kind of spectacular thing that he must be both um, and that he's, you know, an international genius um, made me angry. <laughs> I can yeah. probably say. And I have much more to say on that subject, but let's get to the questions. No, I love that. Very well said. And I think I'll... I guess we should read things that enrage us, right? Because they're educational. But I don't think I could read that right now. No I think I would burn that book right yeah. now. Um, yeah, and I do want to come back to childcare. If, if others have questions about it, because I think this is such a vital conversation and it's something that so badly needs to change in our country, um, the structure of our country, and then the way that women are supported in um our creative pursuits is there's just a lot there to talk about. So if anyone has further questions, please put them in the chat. Alexis David's question. She says, hi. And um, she says, I'm so intrigued with the idea of the drug cloud in the likely world. And I'll hold up the book again. We can see the cloud. What interested you about the concept of forgetting? Um, so hi, Alexis. Thanks for coming. It's great to see you here. Um, you know, it didn't start out really being about forgetting. Um, you know, it became that pretty quickly. Um, but originally it was just, it was much more about regret. Um, and I suppose what I started out with was, um, a state we all enter after you've done something like hideously embarrassing. And I know this is going to sound really trivial, but I'm being honest about where it came from. Um, I know that probably most people have seminal embarrassing experiences that they rehearse over and over again. Um, and Jennifer Egan in A Visit from the Goon Squad writes about it beautifully and she calls them shame memories. Um, but, um, but I thought about, you know, what if you could just eliminate that feeling? Just excise that thing from your brain. And I think we all think about the brain this way, right? It's just in our heads, right? I feel sad, but it's just in my head. There's nothing really happening that's making me sad or I feel embarrassed. It's just in my head. 
Um, and there, and we live in, um, in a pharmacopoeia, right? Where there are drugs for so many things and we tend to medicate so many things. Um, and, uh, it, it felt like a way of, of thinking about the reality of experience and also the, um, the, um, subjectivity of experience, right? So that kind of paradox, it is our own experience is very, very powerful and it drives our behavior, right? In this case, shame and shame memories, right? But um, it's also absolutely ethereal, right? So I was able to imagine a drug that would eliminate that experience and then think about the what if, what, what would that mean for us if we could really excise parts of our experience? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I started. It became a lot of other things, um, and sort of gathered narrative, but that's, I think that's where I, where I began. So thanks for that question, Alexis. Oh, that's a great question. Keep them coming, everybody. Um, yeah, so let's go, let's talk about shame a little bit more. You mentioned shame in relation to motherhood, um, earlier as well when we were talking about childcare and how there's still that sense of shame so many mothers feel when, um, when they're not full-time caregivers and I'm not a full-time caregiver, um, or at least I wasn't before the pandemic. Now that's changed for a lot of people. So let's talk about that sense of shame. Why do you think women, um, do feel that sense of, of shame when we turn to childcare? You know, I am, uh, you know, I'm a feminist. I'm a second wave feminist, so I'm not even a cool feminist. <laughs> um, I was raised by, um, a feminist mom in the 1970s and that kind of, um, second wave, um, Gloria Steinem, um, situation was very influential on me. And I never really expected that I would grow up and feel that the, um, idealized, um, heteronormative, um, patriarchal idea of wifedom or motherhood would um be important to me i thought like i'm charting my own path i'm gonna do i'm gonna do my thing um equality is good um but i was completely wrong um it i i i feel affirmed when my house is clean and um i cook a good meal i feel affirmed in this space where it turns out i'm surprisingly insecure um, I feel affirmed when I perform motherhood in a way that's kind of acceptable to the public. You know, when I bake the brownies for the bake sale on time and I'm horrible at most of those things. I'm a good cook, but other than that, like I'm, I'm a spacey mom. I am, a, I am the world's worst housekeeper. Um, but you know, Instead of just sort of saying like, hey, that's who I am. We got a messy house. We're going to deal with it. I just carry shame and um, shame clean every now and then um, and shame brownie bake and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's fascinating to me that these ideas that I, I was not raised with them. Um, I do not subscribe to them, um, but I'm not immune. You know, it's like um, body image stuff. You know, it's impossible to be a woman in America 
and not worry about the shape of your body, no matter what you believe intellectually. It is a life's work to rid yourself or to minimize that pressure. And it's insane. Um, so um, I don't even remember where we started. No, no, you <laughs> And actually, that's it uh, harks back to something you mentioned, my last guest, um, something that she had said, Katie Gutierrez, um, about the messaging that she uh, internalized. And they, they, the messages didn't come from her family or from any clear source. It was just the sense of what was expected of her as a as a mother as a writer and these internalized expectations surprised her when she had to face them as a new mother um mother writer so i hear you on that too no one ever told me i needed to be a a perfect mother or do x y or z but i feel a lot of pressure and a lot of guilt and shame around those um expectations too that i am not sure where i absorb them from so yeah, you're not alone in that. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the way in Animal Life you um, sort of set up counter narratives to um, that kind of dominant patriarchal narrative. Um, for you guys who haven't read it, it's awesome, and you should read it. It's amazing. Um, but um, for example, the the title story is about a mother who leaves, right? Um, and um, so that's sort of um, it takes an expected narrative and gender swaps it and explores the consequences in ways that I think are really powerful. Um, and I, I see that throughout. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I think that's related to uh, the mother in your in your book who is grappling with addiction. I think that's something that we see more often from the male point of view, whether it's a father or just you know, a, a man, typically like an artist who's grappling with an addiction. Um, but there's something that feels very transgressive about writing a woman who leaves her family or who is addicted to um, drugs or alcohol. These these things that are unlikable for a woman to do, right, but seem somewhat romantic when it's a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of, and we've talked about um, Rabbit Run with other guests that just sort of gorgeous um fantasy of this man who is no longer happy in his with his marriage and his small child and he just ups and leaves and he has this adventure and yes it's at times heartbreaking but uh i have seen very few narratives about women who do the same and i can think of probably a lot of narratives about um unsatisfied men so uh, Mm. i think that's a brave thing to do and i see you doing that in the likely world as well yeah. Okay. Let me pitch you my um, uh, my childcare as literary critical lens here. Um, Please do. Said adventure, right? Yeah. So in um, uh, you know, in um, young adult uh, fantasy literature, it's a truism that you have to get rid of the parents in order for um, the characters who are young to go on adventures. And the reason you have to get rid of that is so that they can be responsible for themselves and face true danger. Um, similarly, for many narratives, you have to take care of the kids in some way, if there are children in the narrative, in order for the adults to go on adventures. So my lens now um, is, um, does the narrative provide childcare? Does it think about what's happening to the kids as the adventure takes place, right? So the Odyssey is crap at that. 
right? <laughs> Odysseus just goes and eventually you find out what's going on. But um, but it's like he just leaves and he's not really worried about what's going on with Telemachus. But on the other hand, um, the Christian Bible, it's like there's um, Mary and Joseph and they've got to bring the kid along with them when they go to the tax assessor. And it's a problem. And the narrative has to contend with it. I think it opens up a lot of possibilities. It might not be like the new Marxist theory, but I feel like I feel like it it, um, it helps me understand why some books really piss me off and why some books are really wonderful. And and, um, you know, in The Animal Life, not to keep obsessing about your book, but in The Animal Life, one of the things that um, that the child care lens kind of allowed me to see was to think about um, what happens in absence of adequate child care. And that that is part of the plot. That's part of the driver for so many of your stories. The absence of adult supervision, um, uh, I think, acknowledges the importance of good caregiving um, in ways um, that I think, um, you know, the traditional male adventure narrative doesn't bother with. It's right. Someone else is taking care of that. It's a servant or a wife or um, someone else. It's not part of the story. Yeah. And I wonder if readers even question. Right. Do they notice the absence or the question of the children if it's a male adventure versus a female adventure? If we read a book about, um, you know, a woman who leaves her family, we're always wondering what's happening with her children and who's taking care of her children. If she's not there, are they, you know, what? To what detriment has she is she acting upon them? But men, like you said, Odysseus, he can go off. I don't. I wonder if anyone really approaches male narratives with that lens because we're conditioned not to. We just expect that there's a woman or a caregiver taking care of that child that he's left behind. So I think that's a fascinating lens to look at fiction through. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of books where. Um, where it's really central to the narrative that the man is sick of taking care of the kids mm-hmm. and then he takes off. And I'm worried that this is going to be like the first world um, male novel. And I'm just not here for that. Like yeah. I'm not here to feel sorry for the fact that you have to take, you know, you have to do 44% of the childcare. Like, I'm not sorry. Yeah, we can talk about the emotional labor and all of that, too. Um, have you seen that wonderful um, graphic? I forgot her name. It was a French graphic, um, not graphic novelist. Anyways, they're like cartoonist. And she has this wonderful cartoon, like graphic cartoon about emotional labor. I don't think I have seen it. Oh, my gosh. I'll have to send that to you. I'll put it on the page um, with your interview so everyone can can look at it there. But um, But she just brilliantly breaks it down in what is essentially like a maybe a 20 panel cartoon and it's it went viral a number of years back and it's actually really helped frame some conversations with my husband who is actually really good at the emotional labor I don't I want to give him credit but I've seen with lots of my friends who maybe their their significant other is not as present that they could bring it to the table and say read this and let's have a conversation about it so that was that's something to look at, I think. Um, we have a question here from, and I want to make sure I pronounce your name correctly, Mahal Ronan. Relying on child care may be the one thing that moms feel shame about. There are also the many mistakes we make as parents, some fleeting and some with lasting effects that cause shame. 
I think you're so right. Um, and I think that leads into the next, this is a question from Emily Sanders Hopkins. Do your kids read your writing? What do you want them or do you want them to? Do you ever think about what they will think of what you're writing as you're writing? Or do you ever feel weird about how little you ponder your kids' possible response to your writing? And I'm going to put this up on the screen. Let's see how that, there you go. Just in case you want to refer to that. It's a great question, Emily. Yeah, they're both great questions. I'll, I'll start with Michal's. Um, I think one of, one of the crazy things is that, um, we feel shame for things that weren't our fault. You know, I mean, we feel shame for every way in which our, um, our child, children's lives aren't perfect. Um, so, you know, um, one of the things that drove the writing of the likely world was my daughter's sickness. Um, she had very severe, um, food allergies and it took us a really long time to identify them. Um, and, uh, she lost four pounds between when she was 12 months old and 16 months old. And it was terrifying. And of course I felt guilty for it. You know, um, I felt like I had done something to cause it. And, um, and that's part of how I wrote the narrator of the likely world was sort of imagining, well, what if I had, um, what if, what if it was something bad that I did that made her sick? Um, uh, so I think, yeah, I think we do feel a lot of shame and, um, uh, we all make mistakes. Of course, um, we all make lots of mistakes. Um, but we carry more shame than is our, than, than we deserve. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I hear you. Um, uh, and then on to Emily's question. Yeah. Let me put it back up here for us. Um, yeah. About your kids reading your writing. Okay. So, officially none of them have read it. Um, certainly not the 13 year olds. Um, because it's, I mean, it's very explicit. Um, but, um, maybe off the record, some of the older ones have read it. Um, and, um, you know, mostly like they're nice, but mostly they don't care. Like where I'm the, they care if I'm making chicken or if I'm making beef for dinner. Um, they care if like I am gonna let them do whatever they want or give them the fifty dollars that they want. They do not care about me as an artist. Um and um I think you know I've told Coco not to read the book. I hope she won't read it until she's older. Um but just because I don't think it's appropriate. Um and, um, but I also don't want to forbid her from reading it ever because then it's, that's weird. Um, yeah, I think about it. I think about it, um, what it'll be like for them to read. I definitely keep them out of it. I keep them out of my work. Um, they're tempting because they're cool. I want to write about them, but, um, but I feel like that's one line I can't cross is I can't, I can't write about ch- my children. Um, so yeah, I do think about it. Um, and, um, it's, it's complicated and it's different from how I feel about, um, drawing on other life experiences that I had that I might've shared with other people. Yeah. How is it playing into the novel you're, you're working on now? And could you tell us a little bit about that? Are you ready to share a little bit about your work in progress? Uh, I can share a little bit. Um, it's called the late humans of Western New York. Um, 
And um, it's set in an Ithaca-esque town that has a prison and a college. Um, and um, it's set in an indeterminate amount of time in the future. Um, and, and the main characters are a mayor, the mayor of the town and his wife, um, who volunteers at the prison. Um, and the kids in it are five. And I kind of think they're very fictional. But I kind of think that's how I'm managing it is like the kids are always younger in my fiction than they are in my life when I'm writing it. So it feels very much like there's a veil between my experience and um, my experience of my own children and the fictional children that I'm writing. Um, so, yeah, so that's how I'm managing that. Uh, now, tell us a little bit about the logistics of writing now that your kids are older. Um, you mentioned how difficult it was when your daughter was between the ages of one and five. What changed after she reached that five year mark? And then just what has it been like? What has the progression of your writing life looked like for the last, um, I'm, I'm bad at math, but 13 minus five <laughs> years? Um, well, the magical thing that happens when they turn five is that they go to school. Um, so, a uh, special thanks to Michal, who is, uh, who was a teacher at Coco's, um, elementary school. Um, and that's huge. Um, you can pay for childcare before then, but something about going to sending your kids to public school, knowing that they're out there learning, doing something that's important for them, not just about giving you time to do what you need to do, work or write or whatever. Um, for me, created a totally different headspace. But the really magical thing that happens is when they learn to read independently, because then they're doing something awesome for them and they're super engaged. So you feel no guilt at all and you can do your own thing. Um, so it ramped up, you know, I mean, every year, every developmental phase, I got a little more time and brain space. And I think it's not just about time for me. Um, some people can exit parenting and walk right into writing. And that's, that's a seamless transition for them. For me, the psychic weight of thinking about my family is also important. Um, I married my husband, so I got another caregiver and he adopted my daughter. Um, and, um, so, um, who's now our daughter. Um, and, um, you know, and so gradually I got more and more time. Um, and, um, and so it's now possible for me if I need to, to exit family life for short bursts of time, um, you know, for, uh, 10 days if I need it. Um, and so I can have that intense work time as well as to carve out a little space in a given day and a given week. I was a daily writer before she came along. Now I'm not. Um, I write probably four, four days a week. Um, and it's not necessarily the same days, but I try to, to, um, I try to get four or five days a week and to spend a little time with my text on the off days, like rereading or thinking about it. Um, so that I don't have to restart it again when I return to it. And, um, yeah, and honestly, with kids this age, I just say this for anyone who has younger kids. Um, it's not hard. It's not hard to be a writer 
and a mom and somebody who works. Um, it works. That is so reassuring to hear. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> That's why I think it's so important to have on this show women who are at all stages of motherhood and writing to hear all of the different perspectives and, you know, to um, share the struggles of the early motherhood with women who are going through it right now, like the last two guests, and then to share with mothers who have a little distance from that time period, but are still, I mean, it's still hard work to be a writer and to be a mother, whether it's hard to be both at the same time, that's a different question, but writing is hard work and so is parenting. So thank you for that perspective. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit now you've been through, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the different parts of writing a book with a variety of different ages of children. So, um, you drafted the likely world when your daughter, you said you started it when she was five, mm-hmm. right? At that magical time. Mm-hmm. Um, now you wrote a book before that when your mm-hmm. daughter was, was younger than five. Mm-hmm. And now you're drafting a novel again with older children. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the different parts of writing a novel? So the generative, like thinking part, and then the part where you're drafting, which as you've said, maybe before the interview started, you were telling me that you're writing all the sort of the, the content, and then you'll see what comes out of it there. And then you've done 12 revisions of The Likely World. So talk us through what those different stages of writing a novel look like for you as a mother, as you've moved through all those different ages with your children. So one thing that um, now that you asked this question that I realized radically changed um, from the before time to the after time um, is how I compose. So I used to compose on the page. So I was always typing or writing longhand when I was composing. Now I spend a lot more time in my head um, and um, playing around with scenes and even playing around with sentences and words. And um, they that's usually something I do before I go to bed at night. Like when I'm lying in bed, I'm playing with a scene. I do it deliberately on purpose because I know it's productive. Um and um, and if it gets really good, I get up and I write it down um, and uh, I'll pick at a scene for, you know, I'll pick at a scene for a few weeks um, and then I'll kind of either organically or um, or uh, deliberately, if it's not happening organically, move on to something else um, and I'll get it down on paper somewhere in that process, not right at the beginning and not, and I don't wait until the end, but I'll keep playing with it after I've written it down. I've written a draft. And when something good happens in that space, I get it down on paper. Um, so that's kind of the, um, the composing, um, the sort of generative part of it. Um, I, I love narration. I just love, I, if I could, if it was okay to write a novel that was just someone blabbing, this might surprise you, Laura, but <laughs> that would be what I would write. It would just be someone being like, hey, what's up? You know, small <laughs> voice, no plot. Um, so I kind of have to, like, push myself to stuff happening. Um, and I have to think a little bit deliberately about, like, okay, what's the conflict here? Like, you know, um, how is this scene going to generate action? And that's kind of like, how to kind of tell myself to do that stuff. Um, and but eventually it'll move out of just the pure ruminative space and into 
a set of actions and they'll drive the test for a while and then I'll get stuck and I'll have to ruminate and usually have to go back and rewrite some stuff to get enough momentum going to push forward the next part of the text. Um, and I end up with a draft. Um, I always have the ending um, and it always sticks. Um uh, and I always have the beginning and the middle is murder. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, so that's kind of my process. Oh, I'm with you on the middle being the murder. Yeah. And plot being, I'm with you. I would rather just, and I love just, uh, summary, right? I just love mm-hmm. the, you know, um, no dialogue, just taking people through leisurely time and describing characters. And if nothing, could happen that would be amazing for me <laughs> but yeah you know um we do have time thank you alexis for asking we have one more question from alexis i think this this could send us out so um melanie could you tell us how you choose your structure so you mentioned a gathered narrative and alexis says she's curious about the non-chronological off-kilter structure of the likely world so I think almost everything that every writer does comes from their, you know, faults and proclivities. Um, and like we were just talking about how we don't really, neither one of us really wants to have a plot. Um, the other thing I really wish could be true is that all novels were just backstory. I just want to tell you how the characters ended up today doing nothing. <laughs> so I'm I'm obsessed with their history. I know everything about all my characters' histories, and some of that material is so completely compelling that I have to figure out a way to like sneak as much of it into um a narrative with energy and drive towards an end as I can. Um so the dual time structure is really it allows me to do that to create two narratives with or in like in this case actually it was four um which um uh which have forward motion um uh without um but still give a big sweep of time um and in the book I'm writing right now I think the the um structural challenge for me is that I have two narrators um, and so it's a lot harder to move back and forth in time if you have two narrators. Um, so um, there's a book, uh, Topeka, um, that came out last year, um, which is really interesting structurally in terms of how it, it, it moves through time. Um, it um, Each chapter travels through lots and lots of time using the consciousness of the narrator as a um, as a vehicle to move through time, so the character is thinking about the past. The character is thinking about two years after that. The character is thinking about um, the present, um, and and I think that's my, a, a sort of organic way to deal with the same thing. Um, so I'm still trying to. I'm honestly still trying to find the structure that allows me to do what I want to do, um, and I'll keep negotiating with it. Like I'll be, uh, I'll, the structure will ask me to do something and I'll, I won't want to do it. Um, <laughs> and, then, and I'll, 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 we'll back and forth a little bit. Structure usually wins and I have to give up, you know, whatever it is I was trying to do. <laughs> and then it all somehow comes together, right? After all the generation in 12 drafts and. <laughs> you know, on the plane. Yep. There you go. 
Thank you so much, Melanie. I'm going to um, put up here on the screen, if I can find it. There we go. Now on Writer Mother Monster, we have a bookshop link. So if you go to that link, um, you will find Melanie's book for sale through bookshop, as well as the books of all of our other guests. So pick up this book. I'm going to hold it up one more time. The Likely World. It's obviously brilliant, as you've now heard. So pick it up. And um, let me see. I'm pulling up my outro here just to say that... Uh, yeah. Thank you all for tuning in tonight. And again, you can watch this video as always. Again, um, listen to the episode as a podcast or read the interview transcript all on writermothermonster.com. And if you enjoyed the conversation, please also consider becoming a patron or patroness on Patreon. Thank you so much, Melanie, for joining us. This has just been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. And thanks to everyone um, who I know is here, Michal, Emily, um, Alexis. It was great to see you guys. And, and I'm sure there are other people that I don't know are here. Um, but it's really great to um, to be talking with you and to have so many wonderful people along with us. Absolutely. Have a good night. Melanie, stick around for a second. And good night, everyone. Good night.